0: Welcome to this February 7th episode of the Autism Science Foundation Weekly Science Podcast. Today, the topic is language regression. What is it and how can it be predicted? Also, we'll be talking about how environmental factors, things like early social interaction and enrichment and early teaching, how can they change developmental trajectories? So the first study examines an issue I know many people experience and are concerned with and frustrated with and has been a mystery to families and clinicians. This is language regression. This is when toddlers speak a few words or utterances and then lose all of those words. They don't speak those words anymore. And then it's followed by a stagnation of language development for a little while. So a toddler says some words or utterances or one word phrases and then stops and then sometimes stops expressive language altogether. It's not specific to autism. In fact, it's a characteristic in Rett syndrome and some forms of epilepsy, but it's different than the regression after epilepsy of a seizure. It seems to just come out of nowhere. There doesn't seem to be a precipitating factor. What we're learning about regression comes a lot from studying infants before they even start to speak And looking at some of the characteristics and how language emerges normally and in children with autism, if words are spoken early, late, do they regain some language and how much? Because not all children go on from a language regression to never speaking again. Molecular biologists have started to pinpoint it to projections and connections that happen early but then they end up going to the wrong place. That's a start of language and then a loss of language. So how many people are affected with this language regression? Well, surprise, surprise, the range is kind of wide. It's anywhere between 20 and 40% based on who you ask, when you ask, and how you ask. It depends on if you ask the parents after the regression has occurred or while language is starting to develop. It differs whether behaviors are easy to identify, if parents can catch it pretty quickly, or if they're more subtle language differences or language that parents can't even distinguish as language. They might be mere utterances or or grunts. And that's when prospective studies of siblings who have a high probability of diagnosis themselves are helpful. Language regression is a complicated picture, but hopefully this study I'm going to describe sheds some amount of clarity on it. Specifically, what do the longer-term outcomes look like in a child with autism that shows language regression? What happens to these kids who show parent-reported language loss before age seven? What happens at 10 years of age? And how do things like sociodemographic factors and develop milestones associated with development align with these expressive and receptive communication patterns in those who show regression versus those that don't? What happens in the long term, not just at the time of regression? So the study used to answer this question was one I've talked about before. It's called the Canadian Pathways and ASD study, which started following kids at two to five years of age, but then kept on following them to age 10. 22% showed a loss of language skills, most of which happened before the child entered the study, so this was all based on parent report. Not surprisingly, those with regression had lower scores on expressive and receptive language and lower cognitive scores by ages 5 to 7. Their language development was about three and a half months behind during that period. And if you take cognitive ability into account, the delay was more like 1.3 months. So obviously those who had cognitive disability had greater language development delays. On the other hand, those that showed regression walked earlier. They said their first word earlier, almost a year earlier than those with autism that did not regress. And in the end, they attained phrase speech about the same time. So by the time they reached 10 years of age, there was no difference in the regression group and the non-regression group on expressive communication or receptive communication. So this earlier time of first word speech in those that regressed, what was that all about? You would expect the absolute opposite. So those who regressed actually showed first word speech er about a year earlier than those who didn't regress. Possibly there's a causal relationship there. This study wasn't really designed to answer that question, but it is consistent with the idea maybe when there's a little premature language that got accelerated, which is also seen in age of first walking. Again, those who showed regression showed an earlier age at first walking. The question is, Was everything just too early? They started talking or speaking or expressing themselves before they were ready to. Maybe a neuron didn't go the right place, triggered language, and then went to the wrong place and then stopped language. But then they also showed worse motor function. So this caused a downward cascade, and I'll get to that more. So they showed things a little bit prematurely. Then they stopped. They had poor motor function, and that led to a downward cascade in expressive language skills. But at the end, both groups ended up with phrase speech about the same time. Cognitive and motor skills were tightly linked with communication levels in all autistic children, and accounting for the early motor deficits in all children removed the language deficit associated with language regression. So where do we go from here? Motor problems are clearly a key part in developing language. So we need to consider different environmental risk factors that can promote language as an early protective mechanism for development and that includes motor. That can't just be language. Scientists and clinicians should focus on all areas. And again, motor delays seem to be highly predictive of language and so is cognitive function. So this is where we need to focus. The idea of this multifaceted developmental framework, including motor abilities, was also promoted in an article by three baby siblings research consortium scientists. They were Jessica Bradshaw, A.J. Schwichtenberg, and Jana Iverson. In this paper, these scientists reinforced what the regression paper said. It isn't about just one moment in time. These longitudinal studies are able to look at developmental cascades. What is one thing that can predict another down the road? Are there multiple factors or just one? How does a delay in one area of functioning affect not only that area of functioning later down the road, but also areas of behavior? So they give examples of very early motor abilities and what they call watershed moments in the first year of life. Specifically, this motor ability could be from laying down in a supine posture to independent sitting. So this achievement of going from laying down to sitting allows access to new experiences and new opportunities for interaction with objects and people in the environment of the infant. It also has the ability for more interactions of parents and caregivers, Sitting infants spend more time facing their parents or caregivers and allows for shared play and joint attention. Unfortunately, on average, infants with autism begin to sit independently later than neurotypical babies. And even when they're able to sit independently, infants with autism spend more time lying in postures like laying on the ground looking up than infants without autism likely because this sitting posture requires development of balance and control that may be delayed in those with autism. So less time spent sitting upright and slowed consolidation of sitting skills may limit the opportunities that an infant has for object manipulation and play. And that's an environmental factor that can improve behavioral development, communication, and socialization. There's another watershed moment these researchers mention: visual attention. Now developing attention in infancy is critical. Infants need to pay attention to things that are important and maybe try to learn to ignore what is not important. And this skill includes coordination of the head, the eyes, the body, the hands. And one of the things that scientists are finding out about infants with autism is they have diminished attention disengagement, which means they can't disengage from things that are really not relevant for communication and social interactions. Like they can't switch from looking at objects to the face or the eyes. And this again, results in missed learning opportunities. And this is caused by abnormal neural circuitry. It's biological. So you can see it starts with the motor and sensory system, and that coordination affects what babies look at, and those experiences shape social interactions and learning. But is this something that needs focus in that first year of life to ensure that babies can be on a trajectory that allows them to connect, communicate, understand, and filter out irrelevant information? Yes. One last thing that they called the a watershed moment is sleep. And we all know that babies with autism sometimes don't sleep as well. If there are atypical synaptic patterns that prevent sleep, these babies can be under or over aroused, and that leads to maladaptive behaviors. So, to reiterate, there's not just one system here, there are multiple systems. That's why when you learn the signs, you need to act early and there are multiple signs and there are multiple things that can be done to support attention, motor skills, learning, communication, sitting and attention. Is there one cascade that's more important than others? Probably not, but these cascades like motor and attention can be partially controlled by the environment Early intervention that promotes self-regulation, motor skills, then have a downward cascading effect on communication and social development. So then that actually affects play skills and sensory motor behavior. So the idea that there are these watershed moments that help developmental cascades was partially tested in a study out of Japan that looked at factors that may disrupt these normal developmental cascades. The Japanese Environment and Child Study is a large epidemiological assessment of children examining all things developmental in child development and outcomes, not just autism, but it does include autism. As part of the study, they looked at 84,000 mother-child dyads and found a prevalence of about 0.4% of autism. I know that seems a little low compared to the United States, but that could just be due to the methodology used. So they had about 330 children that were diagnosed with autism. During the course of this study, they asked the parents to record how much screen time these kids were exposed to before one year of age, and they also did an autism screener. And then they later measured ASD outcomes by parent report at three years of age. So the moms reported how many hours per day they let their kids sit on iPads in front of the TV or iPhones. It was either less than an hour or nothing One to two hours, two to four hours, or four hours or more. Now, out of the 330 kids with ASD, 19 total were allowed no screen time. I want to meet these parents. No screen time? No Sesame Street? No Baby Einstein? No video chat with grandparents? Nothing? I find that a little hard to believe. I do know that there was a time when people didn't have screen time, and of course, you know, back in the 1800s, there were no TVs and certainly no iPads, and parents did it. But nowadays, I just wonder who are those families that don't have any screen time in, at, at all in infants? Now, on the other hand, you had 33 that had four or hour, more hours per day, and even all admit for an infant, that's kind of a lot. The WHO recommends zero, but you have to be realistic here. What happened when they were doing laundry? Were they taking a shower or cooking? Nobody ever put their kid in front of a baby Einstein before. Do you guys even know what baby Einstein is? That may be aging me. I do realize children were raised at a time before there was no screen time. But that always, again, still shocks me about no screen time. So anyway, the content of the screen time was not known, just the hours. It wasn't known if they were looking at educational videos, whether they were looking at videos of grandparents, just that they had no screen time. Then they also took that screening tool for ASD at one year to see if that could account for the probability of autism at age three. And even when they took those screening scores into account, Longer screen time by one year of age was associated with a diagnosis of ASD at three years of age, but only in boys, not in girls. When I say associated, it was an increase, but of course it was not an all or nothing thing. So this idea of early developmental environmental inputs, including those that may be prevented by motor disturbances or attention problems, kind of applies to this idea of screen time. If kids spend too much time in front of a screen and they're not encouraged to sit, or they're not encouraged to interact with the world, they're not getting the visual input and social input they need to develop socially and learn to communicate productively. But with all due respect to this study, I don't buy the results 100%. It appeared in a very prestigious journal, the Journal of the American Medical Association. So maybe there's something here I don't see. Why boys and not girls? Well, that might be some protective effect in girls and that doesn't really surprise me. But this study barely accounts for the fact that babies with autism have sensory issues and may be more attracted to screens and therefore their parents give in with baby videos. There were also a lot of other factors that were not taken into account, which I'm kind of doubting this it's all screen time approach. We just learned that all sorts of other factors account for these watershed moments of developmental cascades. So what are some more proximal outcomes? Is early gesturing delayed? Is joint attention disrupted? Are there other early autism behaviors? And it can't just be autism. What are some of the other outcomes of these kids? Are these kids more cognitively impaired? Do we know anything about early development? If what we've learned is that you, you can't just go from age one to three and then assume everything is the same for everyone in between. The effect was significant, but that doesn't mean that all boys who had autism watch more than say, two hours of screen time. That can't just be it. It's not that simple. So don't go crazy with the screen time. But if you want your babies to talk, over fam- talk to family over FaceTime, go for it. It's not going to hurt them. If nothing else this week, let's just agree it's not all that simple. It's not just about screen time. There are other factors involved. Thanks for listening and talk to you next week.